0: My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes, or number two, you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and become a patron. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Cadell Last. Cadell is the author of Global Brain Singularity and Sex Masculinity God. He's also the creator of Philosophy Portal, which is an online academic platform dedicated to the future of philosophy in the digital age. And he's a YouTuber offering interpretations of major thinkers in the idealist and psychoanalytic philosophical traditions. Among other things, Dr. Last is an expert on Nietzsche, And I wanted to have a conversation with him about Nietzsche's philosophy in general and what it could tell us about technology, transhumanism, AI, and the Singularity. So without further ado, Dr. Cadell Last, welcome to Singularity FM.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I've been a long time follower of the channel and really looking forward to this.
0: Fantastic Cadell. We're going to have a blast. I'm pretty sure of it. But let us start in the beginning. You know my first question, who is Cadell last in your own words?
1: Oh, who is Cadell last? Uh, I mean, other than than uh, the radical
0: process of becoming in relation to impossibilities (laughs) and someone who is striving to be a part of the future of psychologically
1: (laughs) informed philosophy. Absolutely. Um, I think. The easiest way to describe me in the context of of this conversation is someone who, around the time of, let's say, 18 or 19, I became fascinated with two basic questions that were both stimulated around the idea or the feeling of a type of perplexity of the human condition. Um, I just had this, I guess you could call it an intuition, that the human being was an extraordinarily strange thing. Um, When I compared it to all other phenomena I was aware of in the universe, and this just hit me like um, an enormous weight. And ever since that moment, my intellectual striving um, has been driven by uh, an attempt to understand where we came from, so a a sort of past or an um, evolutionary-oriented view, Um, and then that naturally translated into um, being perplexed about the future. Um, and 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 where we're going, and uh, in that context, this sort of future-oriented view was always kind of um, driven by a feeling um, of strangeness that science was oriented around prediction um, and that we could predict a lot about um, the future of the universe on cosmological scales um, and even evolutionary scales. Um, but when it comes to, for example, the next 50 years, the next 100 years, the prediction horizon becomes so large that basically we can say very little. Um, and in that context, I have to say that, that perhaps other than Charles Darwin being a huge motivation, I would say Ray Kurzweil, um, was a huge motivation. And I still remember being around that age and reading the singularity is near, uh, and, and feeling just so, um, open to the speculative hypotheses that were presented in the book. And the rest is history.
0: Wow. That's that, that, that basically tells me that you are a fellow traveler who is thirsty for knowledge and for discovery and who is a seeker on a journey, uh, which is basically what, what, what I feel I am and what I think most thinking, curious uh autonomous independently minded humans are um and what nietzsche was wasn't he
1: Ab- absolutely i mean nietzsche from um actually you know in 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 preparing um the course on nietzsche i was doing background on his sort of philosophical awakening and it um it reminded me of something similar of of someone who as you know a, a late teen who basically comes to his own sort of um, uh, moment of realizing how strange the human creature was. And for him, that was very much around uh, the relationship between pleasure and truth. Um, But uh, the consequence of that philosophical awakening was a relentless pursuit of truth that lasted until the end of his life. And, And I think that that's, yeah, that is interesting parallels there.
0: So how did you discover an issue? You told us how you discovered uh, sort of the, the ideas behind the singularity, Ray Kurzweil's work, your mm-hmm. thirst to, to discover more, the meaning of life, the, the sort of the cosmological perspective and, and the paradox that we can kind of predict cosmological phenomenon that, that, or phenomena that are billions of years, you know, beyond today, and yet we struggle with what looks like really short-term uh, predictions about our own civilization. Uh, so so where does Nietzsche fit in here and how did you discover him for yourself?
1: Well, my first encounter with Nietzsche was actually through the transhumanist lens because when, especially throughout my entire 20s, um, I, I was, um, first I was extraordinarily biased by the sort of, um, let's say the, evolutionary scientific worldview, and and that structured most of my striving. Um, second, I became obsessed with sort of uh, technological speculations and, and, and the transhumanist worldview and the futurist worldview, and that oriented uh, most of my, again, my, my intellectual striving. So uh, as it regards, you know, my, my sort of passion for the evolutionary worldview, I didn't really encounter Nietzsche. I didn't really encounter any uh, great evolutionary theorists that actually um had had used Nietzsche in their work, which I think in retrospect is something that's worth exploring and putting into deeper connection because I think, you know, I I, th- I think Nietzsche is quite at home uh in, in an evolutionary universe, to be honest. But um I, I first encountered uh Nietzsche in the writings of Max Moore, uh Nick Bostrom when they sort of were um, sort of debating about whether or not Nietzsche's overman and the basic concepts pre- uh, presented in Dustbooks there, Zarathustra had a relation to uh, transhumanism. There were a few other uh, influential transhumanist thinkers that basically uh, um, you know, engaged Nietzsche's work. And that, that's where I encountered his ideas because um, my, my actual uh, going to philosophy itself and investigating the, 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 the primary sources um, of philosophy uh, didn't come until I entered my doctorate, um, and 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 uh, when I entered my doctorate, I basically started to entertain philosophy in terms of the primary sources and and do really deep investigations of the primary sources. Um, basically, because I felt like my com- my you know my combined knowledge of evolution and transhumanism had taken me a great distance, but something was missing, and, and that I thought that something missing was. Um, uh, basically, in the last two centuries of philosophy, this really intense focus on the psyche. And I think that Nietzsche is one of the paradigmatic figures of this great intense focus on the psyche, even to the point where there are some people who think that Nietzsche is the first true psychologist, for example, and, and potentially a ground for 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 real psychology. And of course, someone who influenced a lot of um traditions in, in psychoanalysis, in existentialism, in um continental philosophy. So I really feel like he's a, a pillar, a foundation stone and, and a great place to then explore the 20th century. Carl Jung was the guy, I
0: think, who said that Nietzsche killed philosophy and gave birth to psychology or psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. That's true.
1: Right? Yeah, so- he 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 felt that he felt that Nietzsche represented kind of the end of philosophy, and it's being swallowed or consumed by psychology.
0: That's right. So so the question then for us and our listeners today then is, it's been now at least 120 years since Nietzsche is, is dead, uh, uh, and probably 140 years or so since you know his last books were published. Um, why care about Nietzsche in sort of, the the 20s of the 21st century. Why Nietzsche is is relevant, and is he relevant at all to to our lives today?
1: Hmm? Well, okay, so there's a few ways I could take that. The first way I want to start is um, in sort of this larger issue of the two cultures um, with the sciences and the humanities, I think there's a type of ethic of study which is important to highlight and that ethic of study is something i could reflect on myself having been in for example evolutionary biology or evolutionary anthropology is that even if you are a fantastic researcher in evolutionary biology there are a lot of evolutionary biologists who actually haven't read the primary sources of charles darwin very closely so you can and and you can build your entire career in the research field without having read the primary sources i think what's Missed if you avoid that process is um, a type of nuanced engagement with metaphysics and speculative thinking. Because, like, if you actually, for example, read Darwin, I mean, uh, there's a lot of like speculative juice in, in there as it relates to his ideas about the future of, of psychology, the future of sociology, the future of humanity, um, and stuff that's often missed in, in the research literature se- itself. Um, so in terms of why I go back and read nietzsche is i would situate it within a larger sort of ethic that i try to embody which is to um read the greatest minds who ever lived um that's that's sort of how i i i try to live now which is and that i want to situate that within the context of information overload there there came a point i think around 2016 where basically i stopped reading news i stopped reading pop culture articles i st- and not anything against that. I, I think that there's a place for that. But um, basically, I spend all of my time trying to identify and find the greatest thinkers who ever lived. And basically, I spend my time inhabiting those worlds. And I, and I spend my t- time basically having conversations with those, those minds. And, and I consider Nietzsche. So basically, for example, like, instead of reading like the secondhand literature on cybernetics, I would read Norbert Wiener for example, or instead of going and reading the second evolutionary biology, I would go back and read some of Darwin's notes and stuff like that. And I I, I think I, I approach Nietzsche in the same way. I approach Nietzsche in, in, in and, and why? Why? But well, because one, you're learning about how I think you're learning about how knowledge um, originates. So instead of reading the consequence of the originators, you're going back to the source, uh, you're going back to back to first principles, you um, uh, a second, you're sort of engaging in a singularity of style. Oftentimes in the secondhand literature, um, in the second literature, we become pigeonholed and constrained by a certain style, by the journal that's imposing a certain style, by you know the institution which is imposing a certain style. I often give an example of imagine Nietzsche submitting thus spoke Zarathustra to peer review. You know, it's, it's, it's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. And, and the consequence of that is is that there's a type of style, which you're being, um, uh, that you're entertaining, which is simply singular and irreducible. You're not going to, you're not going to get, to get this anywhere else. Um, and, and I think that that is a characteristic, not only of the overman, but of, of great minds period. Like what, you know, when, you know, in my view, you know, when you're reading, a a Hegel or a Schopenhauer or a Freud or a a Wiener or, you know, all of the greatest minds that that basically led to great fields of knowledge emerging in the past century. Um, You're being invited into something so singular and irreducible and unrepeatable um, that you're, you're, I think that there's just something so precious about that, that, that journey. And, and and that's really what I've sort of dedicated my time to. I appreciate the,
0: the, the importance of primary sources very much. And I appreciate the, the, the style uh, that the great minds all possess, uh, which is important, but but that still leaves the substance question open. So beyond, mm-hmm. and Nietzsche had like a very unique style among very unique styles. Among mm-hmm. the greats, he was like very much sort of like up in your face kind of like full of fire, full of rage, full of emotion, full of heart, um, challenging to the core, uh, but beyond that kind of stylistic Mm -hmm. or or emotional presence, Mm -hmm. uh, what about the substance? What in his substance of work makes it relevant to us
1: 140 years later? Absolutely. Great question. And um, I think the way I want to approach the answer to that question um, is, is in relationship to the intellectual climate that I was in when I was becoming an intellectual, which I consider to be the intellectual climate of the new atheist. So we have, and of course, that time has, has come and in some sense passed, but that was anyway, the, the climate I was, I was in when I was becoming what I am now. So in the climate of the new atheists, again, the Richard Dawkins, the Daniel Dennett, the Christopher Hitchens, the Sam Harris, there's this affirmation of atheism. Um and I think that in this affirmation of atheism, it is in some sense motivated by, uh to again echo this quartet, it's 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 motivated by Contemporary evolutionary biology, uh, contemporary neuroscience, um, contemporary humanist critical discourse, and let's say, um, a little bit of analytic philosophy. and that suite of 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 knowledge, I think. Um, left an enormous impact on our culture, and, and and it was necessary at the time, and I think it was perhaps a reaction to the larger political economic climate of the time. However, I think that when you consider the depth of the continental philosophical tradition in the last two centuries, this affirmation of atheism is missing something, um, and this affirmation of atheism is is precisely missing something as it relates to including the totality of the psyche um, and including the um, striving and 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 striving for meaning, striving for purpose, striving for overcoming in the psyche, which I think is captured by some of the greatest uh, philosophers of the last two centuries. And I think Nietzsche is fundamental for that. And I think that his entire philosophy is built around that. Um, so... Uh, if the New Atheists are a type of uh, deconstructive effort, um, opening us to a type of secular humanism, I think that including a thinker uh, and wrestling with a thinker like Nietzsche offers us um, the grounds for a positive transcendental reconstruction project, which um, I don't really see in the New Atheists.
0: Yeah, I have to to agree with you, and, and even more so... Uh, th- Sort of the the- the four horsemen of atheism that you mentioned uh you know they they're kind of like not just affirmative but they're celebratory of their atheism
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh and and Nietzsche while you know to to the kind of dismay and disappointment of both of both his mother and his sister was also you know unashamed atheist. At the same time, in contrast to those four people that you mentioned, he also did not forego mentioning and dwell, dwelling upon the tragedy of atheism, the void okay. that atheism leaves in one's uh, sort of search, but also uh, as an individual, but also in our civilization in general.
1: So there's, I think that's a hundred percent correct. So, um, there's a type and this goes back to, I think I could connect this a little bit to Nietzsche's very unique style, which is that, um, he is including the full emotional force of his being in his writing. Um, and that, you know, when he is talking about the death of God, he is really opening up a tragic ground. Um, and I should say that while Nietzsche is also pointing towards this striving and this overcoming, this striving and this overcoming um, basically come at a price, which is a full acceptance and a full exploration of this tragic ground. Um, and that tragic ground never really disappears. The full weight, the full existential weight of that tragic ground never really disappears. And so there's a, there's a way in which there is something about the tragic ground which escapes Rationality, He says, and thus spoke Zarathustra in a kind of dismissive way, the only thing that's impossible is rationality. Um, and, and, and just to basically emphasize that this, this, this desire to grasp towards a totalizing reason is a futile effort. Um, and, and that's another reason uh, why I think Nietzsche, as a ground for this sort of metaphysical oscillation, um, that the West has been going under. And I think that when we think about metaphysical oscillations, these are things that occur over centuries, if not millennia. So we can't just read the last decade and understand the metaphysical oscillation. We have to read the last few centuries at least.
0: Yeah, and so, uh, well, there's so many places I want to grab what, what you just said uh, there, but but perhaps, perhaps the, the better thing to do is to go back to his work uh, and, and start from there and then come back to those topics because I'm sure they're going to pop up again. So let's start with, 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 with this. If you were to recommend one, only one of Nietzsche's books to our audience, let's say, you know, a young person like you were, uh, you know, when, when you discovered Nietzsche or when you were like starting your search, your quest for knowledge. Uh, a younger version of you or, or a person of that age and that desire approaches you and, and asks your present knowledge and wisdom and, and says, if I were to, to read one of Nietzsche's books, what would you recommend that I start with?
1: Well, so I'm just, I'll just, I'll just communicate how I've, I've handled that, which is, um, in sort of my larger ethic of, of, of going back and sort of revisiting and communing with the, the great minds. Um, I try to do that in the bibliographic order of their own writing process. And the reason why I do that is because I want to follow the logic of their intellectual development as it's as it's evolving in their head. Like, so for example, one of the things I've done on my YouTube channel is I've um, covered the complete works of Sigmund Freud, and that's been done all in chronological order. So going back to the origin of the writing and, and seeing sort of uh, where he's sort of making mistakes early on, which he rectifies later on, and, and sort of where the sort of seed of ideas come, and then he later fully develops it. So I've done the same thing with with Nietzsche, um, and and so the, the reason why I'm starting this course on on Thus Spoke Zarathustra is because actually if you look at what I would call like the there's, there's there's a 10 year period where Nietzsche basically explodes in creativity, and and that all starts with Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And um Zarathustra, as a character, is kind of like this um, internal image of a um, you know great obviously a great think great spiritual thinker who he is basically using as a, as a communicative fictional device to open him up to a new identity, and that new identity, which opens up is basically the rest of, of, of what we consider Nietzsche's work. So, so Thus Spoke Zarathustra is really this explosive start, which opens him up onto a decade of, of creativity, almost like, you know, almost an unparalleled level of creativity opens up after that. So I think that the consequence of that is that you can see the germs and the seeds of a lot of core Nietzschean ideas in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, whether it's the eternal return of the same, uh, you know, the eternal recurrence, the will to power, the death of God, and and so forth. These ideas are first sort of explosively introduced here. The Ubermensch too. Let's not forget
0: because and we'll talk Ubermensch. about later on if or how that connects to transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's. Uh, and I appreciate I appreciate the fact that that you wanna you wanna follow the chronological development of a, of a person, which makes total sense to me. Also, it uh, kind of. Uh, betrays your full commitment to to an honest uh, quest of knowledge from the beginning, and 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 you know when when there's a, a whole lot of perfection in many of those people that you mentioned, and then you follow as as they get better and better in time, and they start rectifying their their and improving their previous ideas. Mm-hmm. but let's let's talk about uh dustbok zarathustra then because you have a fantastic upcoming uh course uh on the topic that i recommend people check out for sure and you also have uh at least two published uh, uh hour long videos mm-hmm. already and you have two more that would be published uh, soon for free i think yeah. Uh, so I I would I would actually post the, the first two alongside our interview uh, because I I think they're fundamental and and very uh, grounding um, to to anyone who wants an easy and fast kind of introduction and dip into the Nietzschean waters because they're very deep and very turbulent mm-hmm. and very challenging to navigate. So I think uh, your two videos there are to be for soon. Are very useful in that sense, but let's start with that book, Zarathustra. So, what's the book about?
1: The book is—I mean, I think—I think the book starts and ends with how I think. How, let me let me answer this in a way that that might not be too common, because I think the book actually starts and ends with this meditation on what is my happiness if, if I'm not shining for others? And the question of this, what is my happiness if I'm not shining for others, um, is situated in the context of the death of what I think is the perfect image. So there's basically the death of, of perfection. There's the death of a perfect guarantee or a transcendental guarantee that everything's going to turn out all right. There's, there's the end of that there is no more guarantee that everything's going to be all right. So like the, the light at the end of the tunnel, or that, you know, I think the unconscious presupposition that a lot of people labor under when they're working really hard, which is that I'm going to work really hard to get a treat at the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, like, and I think that that deeply, deeply, deeply unconsciously motivates many, many people in their strivings. He starts with the end of that. And he And when he starts, he's already, and this is also important, when he starts, he's already self-realized in some deep spiritual sense. Um, so it's, it's not about his coming to spiritual awakening. It starts, he's spiritually awakened. What he's really learning and what he's really meditating on is once you've become spiritually awakened, how do I interact with other human beings? And how do I lead other human beings in a way that brings them to um, a deeper self-realization of the meaning of the earth as a totality? And I think that's, and, 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 and that seems to be linked with the death of the idea of perfection and the death of a transcendental guarantee. And
0: of course, the lack of perfection uh, comes from the death of God. Yeah who would be that perfection the embodiment of that perfection and who would also guarantee that all's well in the end yep. and you know that good would triumph over evil and that you know the sinners would be punished and and the wicked would be punished and 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 the good ones would be rewarded in the afterlife and and all of that yep. so if we have the death of god the death of perfection then we lose any guarantee for any kind of a guaranteed positive or otherwise outcome anything becomes possible mm-hmm. uh and and therefore that kind of also a calling to to serve God as a meaning as a purpose also becomes now then void mm-hmm. uh because there is no God he's dead uh so so where does that leave us
1: I think where Nietzsche's clear is that it leaves us with the body and the earth. And that's what he returns to again and again and again and again. And he's basically emphasizing that this whole metaphysical structure, um, that has governed much of Western historical development is, uh, has, has a rotten core. This is, and the rotten core is, is basically a resentful nature and it's precisely resentful of the body and resentful of the earth. Um, that it's it's basically motivated from people who have been burned by desire, who have been burned by the givenness of being, um, and in that burnness, in that suffering, have conjured up a fantasy image that would take our attention away from the body and the earth. Now. I think that, consequently, what he's asking of us is to, he's asking our egos to listen more closely to what the body is saying, and the nature of the body, and the way the body is, and how the body feels, and, and, and all of the emotions, and all of, especially emotions related to shame, especially emotions related to pity or resentment. And he's asking us to listen to those emotions, to be in touch with those emotions, that that's the real self-war. That's the real, that's where spirit wins self-knowledge. And to have a view of the earth, which is beyond your childish, ultimately stemming from childish infantile desires of the way you'd like the world to be. And that only in and 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 I think this is where the unconscious and our childhood and the way our minds are structured by childhood and desires from childhood all become sort of formative for 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 the way Nietzsche informs 20th century psychology and stuff like that. But the the, the important thing is is a process of what I think is adultification and maturation of the psyche, where we are able to see a desire. And a striving and a coming to be, which is transpersonal, uh beyond beyond just my ego. And that's in, essential for the overman's striving, is that the overman's striving also involves this counterintuitive perspective on winning and losing. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna win the <laughs> you know, the trophy and the money and the fame and the success and the whatever else that is that's really motivating you. A lot of it is to do with participating in a much larger process than yourself, which is in this world, which is mediated through these bodies um and 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 playing as dynamic and intense and as lively a part in that chain as as or not maybe maybe with a gap in the chain and that's the overman uh that you can i think that's i think that's what it speaks says to me
0: yeah and and you know it's kind of like a, a smaller side point, perhaps, but I often have this this argument with with people who believe i mean not not anymore actually. I used to have this argument, I should say about twenty years ago on religion and on God in general, mm-hmm. um you know and my 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 thing was like, look, God is like Santa Claus, mm-hmm. you know, Santa Claus for all people people want to believe in Santa Claus when they're young because they know they're going to get a present if they're good boys or good girls. And later on, they want to believe in God because they want to believe that, you know, all the evils and the tragedies and and the challenges of their lives, uh, you know, and the failures and everything would be rewarded sooner or later, Mm -hmm. if not in the here and now in the afterlife. And so that motivates some people. To be good in life, because they're ultimately striving to get a present, mm-hmm. and you know that present in the Christian tradition may be you know everlasting life in heaven, resurrection and everlasting life in heaven or what have you, but it takes real guts, it takes real courage to see to face the fact that there is no Santa Claus for old people that there is no guarantee you're going to get a present, even if you do everything right in your life, and now for some people, that may be terribly nihilistic. That may be the most demotivating and depressing thought they ever came up with and may push them towards evil, may push them towards self-destruction, may remove any meaning of their lives and even towards suicide. But for other people, it could create the ultimate motivation, the ultimate challenge, even though that there may not be reward. And even though that there is no guarantee of a happy ending, they may take that as an opportunity to create a meaning to 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 create a path to cast a swath a swath through the forest to 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 blaze a trail if you will that no one's ever walked on before mm-hmm. and to make a difference even though there's no guarantee for success there's no guarantee for appreciation uh or a reward of any kind
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that this I think uh, a few things that here I think are important to emphasize is that the way Nietzsche frames things is kind of your being is already the present. And and that that's a really deep like if you if you keep that I mean it's kind of a perspectival shift on usually the way people's psyches work is that there's something external motivating them. Even say you get rid of God, right? You get rid of all the metaphysical scaffolding. There's something motivating you, like for example the cheeseburger tonight <laughs> or, you know, or the, or, you know, the pizza or the, or the, the new watch or the new furniture. My wife
0: the... is making fantastic pasta and it's,
1: after my interview with you. And, and
0: it's that's going uh, to be great.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that, and that's fine. And when you're with the pasta and like, for example, you know, when you're, when you're with the, the thing um, to be fully present and to be fully there, but the, the whole, the whole idea is that the psychological structure where there's a little gap between you and the thing of desire that you're looking for, whether it's the house, whether it's it's basically all of those objects fail ultimately as a as a source. It's not that those aren't the source. That you're the source. And so that the perspective will shift shift on that gap of desire, I think, is important. And what comes with that, which I think is 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 invaluable, is that also um, the mistakes are a kind of reward. And the failure is a kind of reward. When I look at my intellectual striving and my 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 sort of last, you know, just my quest, um, there have been so many failures and so many mistakes, which have been blessings in in some sense, and 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 which have again have, have it's it's basically the source of becoming is the failures and the and the mistakes.
0: Absolutely, uh, and. Let's talk, we already mentioned that concept a couple of times and it's a key, crucial concept to understand. So let's talk about the overman or the ubermensch, as Nietzsche calls them or him. Should 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 we use the pronoun them? I, I think it's maybe pr- more, pro- what do you think? Should, should we say him or them? I think them is more proper for the u- ubermensch.
1: Yeah, I think so. Like from the very introduction of the concept. Um He situates it in a way that I think is very interesting for um to thinkers like us who are sort of influenced by by evolution and transhumanism because he's he's kind of situating in the in the sort of okay, the apes are a laughing stock from the perspective of the human, and he says the humans will be a laughing stock from the perspective of the overman there's this type of evolutionary process that he's he's pointing towards and um in that context the idea of sort of degendering uh the overman or 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 distancing the concept of the overman from a he or a she uh can be an interesting way to frame it i think there's no no reason why we yeah, can't frame I, it that way
0: i i think he would be apt to to accept that arguably uh in my opinion but let's go into the definition C- can i say can i say
1: or what yeah can i just say quickly that um, I sure. think for readers who are interested in, in diving into the real core of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I, I will say that sexual difference between men and women is certainly alive in his thought. Um, and and, 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 and he, he certainly believes that the overman is something that transcends sexual difference. But at the same time, in the process of overcoming, sexual difference is something I think that he does find important to pay attention to.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to go get sidetracked here, but that probably has the, the, the limitations of his philosophy and, and, and shows that he was a child of his time in a way. And, and also very heartbroken on a couple of occasions with, you know, having to propose twice to the same woman who spurned him down twice, Uh, (laughs) you know, and, and so uh, he kind of characterizes women in, in, in some ways towards the end of the book that may not be uh, what we would commonly associate or accept or embrace today. And, and that's probably the limitation of his philosophy, uh, I would say. But, but going back to the Overman, who or
1: what is the Overman? How would you define the Overman? The first thing I would want to say is that the Overman is not a finished end product or an object so it's it's not like a to to me the overman is not it is not something that you can say um i don't know somehow i'm i'm finished like this is the over like point to it as as some sort of finished product or some sort of end result in any in any sense i i think that that what he's talking about with the overman is is a process of self-overcoming um and and that that process of self-overcoming is is again connected to this idea of getting rid of any positive object at the end of the tunnel, which is going to guarantee anything. The overman operates in such a way as that that, that temporal structure is gone. Um, that, that that temporal structure in his mind is no longer functioning that way. It It sounds a lot more like the overman is functioning in a, in a, in a, a quasi non-temporal space of possibilities which are um a constant invitation to surprise a constant invitation to gambling to risking to to uh you know um a willingness to be um amazed by the unknown this is something which comes up and it, it, it's something which is co- more like um, a feedback loop that is in touch with the opposite of a positive object, kind of an abyss, which is constantly opening up and refreshing. So exactly the thing that most people would see as a nihilism is something that the overman sees as a open spaciousness to sort of gamble, take risks. Uh, ex- a clearing for anything a clearing. possible.
0: A-, a clearing for any possibility. Yeah, it's a
1: clearing for possibility. And and the overman has a sort of psychological disposition, which is in very inviting and very warm in relationship to that horizon. Because the way I think he sees most people's relationships to God, which is in its most general sense, not only God, because even people who Like, I think for Nietzsche, even people who say they don't believe in God have a type of God in the form of an idol or in the form of a fixed image, which they repeat and worship. But I think that it's basically what Nietzsche thinks about those people is that they are looking for a secure identity, which is very concentrated and very singular and something which is going to be with them until they die and which is going to basically be used as a psychological structure of a defense mechanism, which will prevent them from really exploring what life is.
0: I was reading this Buddhist monk the other day, and he's saying in one place that uh, people think that Dharma is a secure refuge, Mm. but those who seek secure refuge are moving away from Dharma because Mm. a secure refuge seeker, even if they find it, is a secure refuge seeker it's not dharma mm-hmm. dharma is away from security it's it's away from refuge it's it's kind of in a way what nietzsche says is laughing in the face of tragedy mm-hmm. isn't it or 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 kind of challenging and singing and waving in the wave of tragedy and embracing whatever comes your way and that's probably a strange way to put it but in a way nietzsche nietzsche's overman kind of embraces the comedy of the tragedy of existence, of 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 the lack of meaning, of the lack of you know maps uh, for one's life, values, uh, 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 prescriptions, uh, secure pathways and benchmarks, and, and 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 guaranteed outcomes. And yet, in the face of all of this, the Overman laughs. Yep.
1: I think that this emphasis on security and the security drive is something that's worth talking about. So, um, my intuition would be something along the lines of when when sort of Nietzsche emphasizes that that something along the views of you're already the present. Um, he's giving this view, and from the very start of the book, he gives this view that his being is overflowing, like he's he's too much, like he's he's too much for himself. Um, and that it's from the, that overflowing, not from a place of I'm lonely, I want to interact with people, but it's from that place of overflowing that he wants to interact with other people. That he just has, he can basically, he gives this idea that he can give to others without losing anything himself. Like he gives this idea that I can even give to my enemies what you couldn't give to your friends and, and stuff like that because I'm so overflowing. It, it doesn't, but there, there's this idea that um, there's a possibility within oneself within within the human being for an always already secureness that you don't need to outsource the search for security in and and that like if you just look at the um the way our urban cities or the way our civilization is designed what it reflects is a, an adult human population which is searching for security in a, in sort of physical structures in sort of in in certain locations where they can stake a sort of flag and say I'm safe here, and then they can insure it and guarantee it until they die. And he's and 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 if you read *Thus Spoke Zarathustra*, the way he's living, and also the way he's living during this ten year explosion of writing, he kind of lives like a kind of nomadic wanderer. In the book, he's certainly emphasizing this nomadic wandering, which is climbing mountains and exploring islands and going on sea adventures and <laughs> things like
0: that. Almost an aesthetic kind of life, even when he's in the middle of a big city like, uh, Turin. Absolutely. So, so, so what's the path then? How do we get to become the Overman? How do we do that? I think. According to Nietzsche. Okay.
1: Well, I think that there are. Um many ethical principles which are explored in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, um, which help you point uh which help which help point the way. Um I, I'll 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 mention one and see where where we go with it. Um one of the ethical principles that I think comes up a lot in the prologue and a lot in the first part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra is a counterintuitive perspective on winning and losing. Um, that a lot of human life is organized around let 's say winning the thing or winning the object, whether it 's a romantic partner whether it 's a house whether it 's a job whether it 's certain again recognition or fame um and Nietzsche gives you sort of this view that almost you should it 's not that you should turn down things when you win but you shouldn't over-identify with the winning and you should stay in touch with the cracks. You should stay in touch where things aren't quite right instead of identifying with the winning and becoming over-investing in your identity because basically you lose yourself in you're sort of giving yourself. It's, it's a form of idolization. Uh, so I think a lot of the distinction between, let's say, the religious metaphysics and the Nietzschean metaphysics have to do with a type of identity investment in a certain external idol. Uh, and the overman has no such... He's, 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 his, his, the very way in which his psyche is operating is other to that.
0: So the struggle is its own reward, and it's not so much about the fulfillment of that yeah, struggle. Yeah, I can give you... But it's about the ongoing, ever-transforming, ever-evolving ever processing in the process of becoming kind of a struggle.
1: Yes. So like never ending in a way. So I'd say there's this idea, there's this never ending process and that never ending process will have events. And those events are things that in the book, I think he labels as, as accidents. Um, and you can give those events, valences, positive or negative tragedies or comedies, uh, winning or losing. Um, but the way that Overman engages those events is from the perspective of a childlike innocence and wonder, irrespective of whether the common person would give them a valence of positive or negative. So like, for example, like he, he like there's this one passage I was just reading where he's talking about, um, he's talking about how he loves his poverty and he loves, uh, sleeping in a meager bed and he loves, uh, being, uh, going on a hike in the cold. And, and and what he's trying to, I think, communicate with that sort of meditation is something like a lot of people could have a negative emotional valence in their mind constantly saying things like, why don't I have more money? Why, why can't, you know, why can't I get to a certain amount of money so I can feel safe? Or why don't I have a, be- a better living condition? Why don't I have a better bed? Or, you know, And this is just constantly running around in their head. And for him, he's- a better the, car, a better house, a better wife, better kids, better teacher, better gym.
0: Better, and just constantly like,
1: running in the head like that.
0: Washing machine, yeah. better TV, better laptop, better iPad, iPhone, camera. Everything. Never ends,
1: never ends. And that cycle, and the, I think the crucial thing is that- <clears throat> People who have that psychological structure, they never question the psychological structure or the frame with which they're approaching the world. They always change the object. So like if if the car didn't work, then the house will work. Or if the house didn't work, then the job will work. But they never question the very psychological structure itself. And... Nietzsche's writing, he implodes this psychological structure in such a way that is, to me, to my mind, liberating, not because I want to just go mimic the way he's living or something like that, but because I'm like, oh, yeah, I can catch myself. I can catch myself much more easily when I'm setting up a structure in my head, which is almost dooming me to a miserable present.
0: (laughs) If that makes sense. Isn't that the condition of our civilization now in the 21st century in particular?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think let's say uh, the horizon of, uh, I think the horizon of neoliberal capital feeds on that psychological structure.
0: <laughs> and, and reinforces it to ad infinitum, totally. you know, from the moment we're born until the moment we die, yeah. we're always in the pursuit of like, you know, a better, so first it's like high school, then, uh, you know, university, then get a better job then so that you can get a better house, you can get a better car, you can get a better wife. Uh, so, you know, you can send, send your kids to a better school and then you have better retirement funds so that you can have better vacations and you can have, you can enjoy your life better. And, and you know, in the meantime, you can buy, buy a better iPad and a better computer and visit and stay at better hotels. And, 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 you know,
1: fly, fly first, first class. class. Yeah, you yeah. use said use fly first class.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know, all of those trappings of success. Totally.
1: I, I just to give like a, a, a really brutally personal example about this is like, um, and this is not, certainly not, um, you know, this is said with all respect, but um, my father worked a job throughout most of his life, which he didn't particularly enjoy and he was very much looking forward to retirement and that was a structure in his mind um that when he you know and he he had the spirit of Nietzsche in some sense he had a, he certainly had a spirit of uh an adventurous man inside of him and and he loved hiking and he loved going to the mountains he lived in Wales at the end of his life and he and he he he, he dreamed of okay when i finally can retire i'm going to go and just live in the mountains for a bit and 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 go hiking around and, and and he came up with a map of all the mountains he wanted to go to in Europe and stuff like this and unfortunately he got terminal cancer and he died before he uh, was able to retire um but I just want to give that story because I want to sort of set up sort of the deadly practicality of this way of viewing life and how deeply like that informs, like I, I, I remind myself of that story maybe once a month or once every two months because I don't want to fall into a psychological setup where I am sort of not living now, not like I'm not caring for the future, but I, I don't want to forego living now because I'm planning a nest egg for when I'm 80, you know, like again, there's no guarantees here.
0: Right, let's go to that, that's by the way, a moving story and unfortunately the story of many lives, uh, many people all the time. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of an unfolding, ongoing uh, strategy. Yeah. Uh, If you, the shortest path to to death is retirement. Totally. Uh, And and as long as you work, uh, you, you kind of usually keep living and especially if you love doing what you do as a work uh then those people tend to live even longer uh but let me grab another paradox here about rich uh nietzsche's idea of becoming the overman and that's the paradox that the path goes according to him through the heart and not the head yeah. talk to me about that because that's kind of shocking uh to our modern culture uh, at least to some point of view but especially Maybe towards the transhumanists yeah. uh, among who are listening, sure. uh, who kind of have this kind of—they uh, uh, they epitomize or put on pedestal the rational mind and our rationality—and yet here we have Nietzsche, uh, and we'll talk in a second about whether the 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 overman, the übermensch, is the the transhumanist or not, and what's the overlap and what's the difference, but. But let's talk about first the idea of how we get there for Nietzsche, because he says paradoxically that the path is through the heart and not the head, not the head. So why is that? And how is that? Can you unpack that for us a
1: bit? Yeah, I think it's a really important one. Um, what I get the sense of throughout Thus Spoke Zarathustra is this idea that people who are living in their head and through a type of, let's say pure reason, um, are unconsciously operating as if they are above the earth and above their body, as if like they're not even in their body and they're not even on the earth. Um, And that theme comes up many times. And that might be an interesting connection with some transhumanist visions, which they do have this fantasy of a disembodied uploading away from the earth. Um, So there's interesting parallels there that might be interesting to put into some sort of dialectical... Um, relationship. We'll come back to the
0: transhumanist sure. views uh, in, in a bit. Just sure, but minutes. there's
1: this overall idea that the 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 dis- basically a disembodied reason is um, false because it's not paying attention to sort of everything that's go- all of all of all of the let's say all of the reasons of the body um, and all of the things which escape just your your rational cognition. And I think that um, even though we are in a contemporary scientific age uh, where cognitive science is emphasizing um, the sort of the four E's of cognitive science, which include within them embodiment, Um, I still have this feeling, and and when I was in a department where, um, you know, cognitive science was taught as a part of the the program, um, that the real, um, let's say... Let's say the, the real cracks of the emotional body, <laughs> the real, let's say screaming and crying and laughing and, and the most intense states that involve me and my body and this world, and especially me and my body and the romantic other, me and my body and, 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 and my community, that the speech of this body is still not really included in these rational signifiers, um, and and not 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 given primacy, not given not given primacy uh, as 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 we're learning from the cracks of the emotional body. It's not that we are rationalizing the emotional body. We're learning from the cracks of the emotional body itself. Um, and why is that important? Well, that's important because I guess. In Nietzsche's view, you don't exist without the body. That the, that the body is the soul. That's his his formula. His his formula is is that, that the body is the soul. And so, so.
0: But also hmm. because for him, the body has more wisdom in it than the best philosophy. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I think that that also sort of uh, foreshadows um, um, psychoanalysis. But it, it 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 it's also sort of saying um, that. The reason why people are running to reason and the reason why people are operating from a point of view of disembodiment is because of a a rotten motivational core where you're actually ashamed of your body. You're ashamed of your desires. um, You might have a lot of resentment about the body you're in. Like, for example, like. We are not avatars. We can't just pick and, p- and pull our body. And I can have this body today. I'm out of that body then. Like kind of like even in like the, the contemporary gender landscape where people say I could be this gender today. I could be that gender. I can just pick it with my mind. But Nietzsche is saying that's not how it works, that you have to be in touch with what you actually are in your body. And that's going to be extraordinarily humbling. And I remember. So why is that important to me? I remember when I was finishing my PhD, that had been a goal structure in my mind for over a decade. I was driven by that idea. I was, I put everything on a pedestal for that idea. And the day I got my PhD, my personal life was an absolute mess. And it was an absolute mess over very simple, embarrassing things related to sexuality, related to eating, related to, you know, common everyday things, which, were not necessarily discussed in intellectual environments, but which were nonetheless the core of my being. So that's why it's so important. And that's why a large part of what I'm doing today in my own intellectual work is trying to work at the, the edge of the intellectual and the personal and putting the intellectual and the personal into a conversation with each other in a much deeper, deeper sense.
0: Yeah, you know, when I look back at my life, all the major decisions that I've made were emotional and irrational. Yeah. So for example, when I decided to leave Bulgaria, I was uh, uh, 18 years old uh, when I made the decision and it took me two two years. Uh, well, I was 19 years old actually, uh, and it took me two years to, to make it through. But I made a decision to leave Bulgaria when I, when I was in the army and and in the place where they're supposed to kind of pump you up and make you the most patriotic and to help you choose death in the name of your fatherland or motherland and all of that stuff. I said, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've given enough. I'm done with this place and I'm out of here. And, you know, then I retired from the army and it took me almost two years to actually leave there. But uh, when you look at my situation at that point, people were telling me, you're crazy, man, you're accepted to university you have a good place to live you have a beautiful girlfriend uh you have a phenomenal job you know at the time uh there was hyperinflation in bulgaria so people were making something like 6 or 7 dollars a month and right out the, out of the gate i came out of the army and because i was a graduate of the english language high school i found a job as a receptionist at the at a, one of the first private hotels in my city and so i was making like very, very good money as a receptionist, Uh, let's say 80 or a hundred, sometimes maybe $120 a month, which, you know, my friend's dad was a head of hospital and he would make $7 a month. And here I am a 19 year old kid just out of the army making 120 bucks a month, like Uh, and, and of course the, the currency was so, so people are like, you have it all, man. You have an apartment to live. You have a beautiful girlfriend. You have an amazing job. You've been accepted to university. What the hell is wrong with you? Why do you want to leave Bulgaria now? And I was saying the girlfriend I have now is not anything serious. And that's not the person I want to spend the the rest of my life with. The job that I have is not the job, the kind of job I want to do two years from now, let alone 20 years from now. The apartment I live in, I don't want to live in for the rest of my life. The place I'm at, I don't want to stay here for the rest of my life. So, so then I went to the United States. That was like a fulfillment of my dream and my goal. And, you know, I didn't want to see when I was in the army, I was like, I never want to see winter again for the rest of my life. So where I go, I go to Miami. I go to Fort Lauderdale, you know, beautiful Florida, this and that, uh, Spent about a year in the United States, all covering the East Coast. And in the meantime, I was in a small college in West Virginia, and I was one of the best students. I finished with 4.0. I had a a job there. I bought, I bought a car there. I was already settled in like 12 months and people were telling me, look, man, you're the best. One of the best students in the university 4.0. You have a great car. You have a place to live. You already have a circle of friends here in West Virginia. Why the hell do you want to leave? And basically in three days, I decided that, I to pack my things, sell my car, drop from university and come to Canada.
1: <laughs> Welcome.
0: Right. A, and that was another totally irrational, emotional decision that totally didn't make sense. And yet it was one of the best decisions of my life. And even the, the very best decision of my life, which was to ask my wife to marry me, which was the, my greatest accomplishment in life. emotional, you know, 100% emotional. There is not a drop of rationality. When me and my wife went out on our first date, you know, I told her, look, sweetie, I'm graduating from university in six months. And for all I know, six months later, I may be in Australia or in New Zealand. So I can't promise or guarantee anything. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know where I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. Uh, so, and and she came from a very different background, so, you know, I'm kind of Eastern Euro, uh, you know, atheist, uh, liberal kind of guy, she comes from a very kind of a Catholic, uh, traditional Italian family, uh, Italian American with very strong roots in kind of Republicanism and, and American patriotism and, you know, gun ownership and, and you name it. So we're like from two different worlds totally irrational to be together, and yet for 20 years, that irrationality, that was like 100% an emotional choice for me and obviously an emotional choice for us. And it took many challenges and many, you know, trees to grind before we get together in the same realm even. But now that we've done that 20 years later, it's the best choice of my life ever. And it was 100% emotional. and. All of those major choices, as I said, leaving Bulgaria, leaving the United States, marrying my wife, uh, and, and then, by the way, starting my blog and my podcast at, at the peak of the recession, you know, I graduated in 2008, couldn't find a job after 300 resumes, uh, and, you know, people would say, go find a job, man. I found a job as, a, as an investment administrator, and I lasted something like five weeks in an investment company, and then it's a debate whether they fired me first or I resigned first. But the point was that I started doing this blog and this podcast and the most one of again the best decisions in my life was resigning or being fired, but not following the rational thing, which is like sticking with the job where you have the prospect to make money and you know, this and that it's investments, it's on the stock market, you you can make a killing, you know, and have a good car and a big house and all of the, you know, trappings of a successful life. And yet I said, "Screw this! I I don't want to do this," and that was totally irrational too. But every major time in my life, at age, every major turn, and I'm going to shut up. No, but, it's fantastic. But it's just like amazing. When I look in retrospect, every major crossroad of my life that I've, you know, reached, I've made a an irrational, emotional decision, and every time I've been rewarded, and it's been the
1: right one for me. <laughs> It's amazing. And I think that at least, um, in the context of what we've been talking about, again, I think what is evident in your life story is that there's this paradox about winning and losing. Like what the, like, in, let me use Nietzsche's language, what the rabble thought was winning, you know, actually wasn't, wasn't, wasn't winning. Um, and, and actually when you said, I'm going to lose it all, uh, that's what opened up. Uh, new possibilities, which could not have been rationally calculated ahead of time. Uh, And I think that's the basic mechanism and that's the basic dynamic that Nietzsche is trying to communicate to us in a lot of his writing is, is that if you think that you can rationally calculate everything that's going to happen ahead of time, you're probably never going to take the action that will be necessary to really live um and i think another interesting thing is that you'll perceive that action as madness um and you will be simultaneously ashamed of your own madness and that's where the shame comes from cuz you're not actually capable of 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 owning what you uh, owning your, your your desire your your emotional body
0: yeah it was madness people told me for me to sell my inheritance uh, in Bulgaria, my apartment where that I inherited after the death of my mother and to sell it so that I have $3,000 in my pocket. And I bought a ticket to the United States for something like five or $600. And so I got on an airplane with one bag of clothes and $2,400 and no way back, no place to live or return to afterwards. And people told me, this is insanity, man. You're resigning a good job. You're saying goodbye to a beautiful woman. You're saying goodbye to university. Guaranteed, you're accepted, and everything. You're scratching off your whole life, and you're throwing it in the garbage. And for what? You don't even know what you're going to yeah. find out on the other end. And, and I've been—it's been one of the best choices I've ever. You done are the ever. overman.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Oh yeah. Well, but but
1: this is this is the type. This is the type of this is this is the type of psychological makeup that Nietzsche is anyway trying to communicate to us. Like, for example, like when I was uh, saying, I was reading that passage uh, uh, earlier about sort of Nietzsche saying he loved his poverty. What is sort of in that sort of um, meditation was something I think that reflected what you just told me about um, sort of giving up your inheritance in, in, in Bulgaria, which is that a lot of people have a psychological structure in their head that they would like to inherit a house. Like they would like to inherit, like they they would like it if if someone close to them passed and they had an inheritance and that it was passed on to them and then they could just live on that inheritance. I think a lot of people have that psychological structure in their in their mind. Whereas Nietzsche's really saying is that that very psychological structure in your mind is preventing you from being alive. Don't you like? Don't you see that rational calculus? It's is, enslaving. Sorry. It. It's, it's enslaving, enslaving you. It. You're a slave to that. You're a slave to that. And so. Yeah, I mean, I think this brings up the question of of freedom and what, what is freedom. And I think a lot of what people see as freedom is something that Nietzsche sees as a type of weird rabble virtue, which is not virtue. Like it's a pseudo, it. it he calls it small virtues.
0: Yeah, talk to me a little more about uh, a few other concepts. The concept of the rabble that you mentioned several times mm-hmm. already, the concept of the wise mm-hmm. man and the concept of freedom sure
1: i think they're all connected actually and and there's actually a passage where he actually tries to connect all those three at once um the rabble is a type of unconscious collective herd mentality um so it's kind of like uh becoming identified with an anonymous crowd um and you could actually interpret that in the context of the modern internet and social media because i think the rabble is up op- yes yeah, yeah totally the 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 whole If I were to put it
0: in one word, I would say Instagram. That's to me the rabble. It doesn't get worse. Right, it's
1: pretty low. Maybe TikTok. I don't know. Does it get? (laughs) Does it? it. it. There's maybe no end to how low it can go. I mean, I'm sure it can go lower, but uh, yeah. Anyway, but but yeah. I mean, I think we can interpret and update these words for the modern social media landscape, and it's it's basically yeah, like an unconscious herd mentality, and. It's interesting what Nietzsche says about what this unconscious herd demands and wants, um, which he says is equality, uh, that they see justice as everyone being the same. Uh, they see justice as everyone being absolutely equal. And what that destroys for Nietzsche is actually uh, the intensity um, that's generated by uh inequality because of striving for greatness that if you like if you strive for greatness and you really put in the work and no matter what the field is, it could be music, it could be podcasting, it could be academic life, it could be whatever the field is, if you've stri- strive for greatness you will be in some sense unequal like there's an inequality there and 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 there's an intensity there there's an intensity there in the inequality which Nietzsche sees as absolutely essential for overcoming and striving and for 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 the future of humanity and the rabble want everything to be the same and so they're envious and jealous of that inequality and they'll try to bring it down that's the way he articulates it anyway so the next thing is the concept of the wise man the wise man that Well, first he'll say, he says a few things about the wise man. The first thing he says about the wise man is that there's some interesting things to learn in the wise man, but what he doesn't like about the wise man is that they're a type of, um, they've got 40, he says they have 40 interesting things to say. So it's like, they're like a wind up mechanical machine. So it's like they have 40 interesting things to say. They'll repeat them again and again and again and again and he's like okay there's some interesting things here but he's just repeating himself like a parrot constantly and he's got 40 things to say the next thing he says about the f- specifically the famous wise man is he says that they are puppets of the rabble so in other words he the way he articulates it is that the rabble is hunting to reduce inequalities related to greatness which they're envious of and they'll use the wise the famous wise men to justify this leveling of the playing field in in, 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 in the sense of, um, I guess, being, being ashamed of greatness, being ashamed of people who have gone above and beyond. That's what he'll say. And then in terms of freedom, he says... My favorite part, sure. if
0: I may interject here for a second, about the wise man is that I think he says something to the effect that the the wise men are actually powerless yes, of slaves the to the winds yes. of the rabble. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Which is paradoxical, but actually, and and if you like, if you ask me, and and that's totally arbitrary, but 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 you know, many politicians yeah. uh, are coming to mind, you know, as perfect epitome of the embodiment mm. of that, you know, and you know, po- especially populists who want to just please the crowd and. Or, or or play to a specific tune to a crowd that that whips them in a frenzy and and stuff like that. So you can see many examples nowadays. So yeah. again,
1: very relevant. Uh, it's it, this dynamic, but the crucial thing here, I think, is that he's very clear, uh, and you you emphasize this. He's he's very clear that the power lies with the rabble and not with the famous wise man, um, and so he he actually is, in my view, playing with. Uh, a type of master-slave dialectic, which has a paradox to it, um, which is that the slaves are the masters and the masters are the slaves. And so it's actually in recognizing that paradox of the master-slave dialectic, which the great in the, the potentiality of greatness in the common people um is, uh, there? that's where their capacity to win freedom lies is realizing that they, they, that the power is in, in them, or like one person realizing oh, the power is in me. It's about actually where I'm putting my time and attention. So like, um, I actually, cause I think you might have been sort of pointing towards the phenomenon of Trump a little bit. Um, and, and I remember that in 2016, when Trump was elected, it was actually that moment when Trump was elected that I decided to stop paying attention to the news, which basically meant to pull myself out of the media cycle, which I felt was driving me insane, um, and to dedicate my time solely to great philosophical works and stuff like that. And so that was, and and and, and Nietzsche calls that in regards to the people who, who make that decision. He says it's people who are making their nest out of an abyss. That's the words he uses, to make your nest out of an abyss. And to win the knowledge, win your self-knowledge kind of by cutting into the unknown of life and being a type of um, anointed with tears like a sacrificial animal. So basically you win your self-knowledge through things that are really emotionally moving you. So things that bring you to tears. So like whenever in the last five or six years, and this has also been a theme of my life, Uh, In the last five or six years is whenever I have been brought to tears, almost by surprise, um, this has always been a major orientation anchor point for me in my process. Yeah, and let's finish about freedom because I interrupted you there before we move sure, on. Sure. It's it's again related to this. So like the it's like I would make it connect into before when I was saying the overman has this type of feedback loop with the abyss where what most people would see as a lack of meaning or what most people would see as this nihilistic term is actually something that's necessary for the cultivation of of, of freedom and freedom in the overman, um, which is kind of like this I get this sense that for for Nietzsche, freedom is this type of self war beyond the pleasure principle where you're no longer. And I could even put this like in terms of like loops or circles that the common person of the rabble is caught into a loop or a circle of unconscious pleasure or immediate satisfaction. Like I want to be satisfied now. I want the object now. It's like, kind of like a child with a toy. And he actually describes that in terms of virtues. He says people who have small virtues are like children with a mechanical toy, where if you take the toy away, they start to cry. Uh, so it's actually the taking away of the toy, which makes the loop like with a gap in it. So it's not a circle with, it's not a closed circle. It's a circle with a gap in it. And that gap allows for the potential newness and the making of the nest out of the abyss. That's at least my interpretation. Yeah. Making the nest out of the
0: abyss is like so beautifully and metaphorically put that I just,
1: I, I, I just love it. I think it's like the opposite of getting an inheritance. (laughs) And you could even give like that example of like people who, for example, uh, like where families that don't maintain their wealth because the kids who just inherited the wealth don't understand how that wealth was made or like how difficult it was to win that. Like, so like I've heard stories, for example, of like Bill Gates making their kids uh, work a part-time job to buy their own car instead of just buying them the best car because he could obviously buy them any car. (laughs)
0: Right, so so let's talk about here, and I, I wonder if we should finish a little bit about the values, because you mentioned mechanical yeah, virtues, but should we just touch before we move on to transhumanism here and see how it connects to what we've talked about here about the Overman, but should we finish or clarify the point about mechanical versus organic? Yeah, that's virtues.
1: actually a really important point. Um, and the metaphor he, he he tries to orient people towards with this distinction between mechanical and organic virtues is, he says, um, have you ever seen a mother demand pay for the way she treats her child? So like when a mother's with her child, she'll give it all her attention, all of her care, all of her time. It's a full time job. But no mother demands pay for that. I mean, there are some feminists who might argue that is unpaid labor that should be paid for in a neoliberal society, which I think is another Argument which we could uh, approach, but um, the whole the overall point is, is that there's a way um, that a, a mother treats her newborn, which is so virtuous giving it all of her time, her attention, her care, losing sleep, um, you know, lo- basically sacrificing herself for the newborn, which he uses as a paradigmatic example um, for people in general to train themselves in their virtue basically he's trying to say organically or organic Organic virtue virtue. yeah to 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 train organic because of that metaphor is organic it's a mother with her baby so it's it's as organic as you can get and throughout thus spoke Zarathustra he gives a lot of beautiful organic metaphors that's throughout Nietzsche's work um but this specific metaphor of the mother with her child um, is basically used as a larger metaphor of the child that he says, where your organic virtues is, is where your child is. So like, for example, when I was writing my PhD thesis, I would often say that I'm pregnant with the book. Like, and then when I give birth to the book, that's my child. And now my child is in the world. And now I have to to move on. I've got sort of like a motherly separation, uh, complex around, okay, that now that was so, so much of my virtue was in that book and and now the now the book's gone, so I have to basically rebuild my identity and and, and, re, and re reconnect with my child and actually i that has been a big part of my process after my doctorate is reconnecting with things that I uh just spontaneously organically loved when I was a child, and that's where and, and basically the the, the the why that's important for Nietzsche is because it's where you want to be. Whether you get paid for it or not, and how is that contrasted
0: with mechanical? Well, virtues? mechanical
1: virtues are rational calculus. They're things I'm like. So, for example, I'm doing X because I'm going to get Y amount of money at the end of the day. So you're it's a trade. trade. It's a it's a it's a rational it's a rational calculus that could be put into a game theory model. I think that's that. I think right. Yeah, I could expand on that. So. There.
0: So in a way and you you correct me because you're the expert here but in a way isn't he coming up with a negation of the the virtues of the the capitalist model uh in, in a way a, 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 of like a rational agent maximizing their own Absolutely. self-interest and then bringing about the optimum the so-called optimum outcome for all parties and trade as the best way of accomplishing that etc. Et you no know, there's
1: there's a lot of things in the course where I'm going to try to connect some of his ideas to things I see in contemporary academic knowledge. One of those things is I think he kind of disrupts game theory at least how it's classically taught. Um <clears throat> in terms of capitalism um he's <clears throat> he certainly he certainly disrupts any any idea of a capitalist model like he First off, not—I mean—he doesn't speak. He doesn't speak with great uh, admiration for the state either. But he doesn't speak with admiration for the marketplace. He actually says the marketplace is very noisy. Basically, he says the marketplace has a high noise-to-signal ratio. That it's and that the and that the people on the market who are successful, uh, the the again it's connected to the great men idea, is are mostly. Imagistic imposters. That if you get closer to them, their image deflates. That the image is kind of like an optical illusion, on the, in terms of the in terms of the marketplace.
0: And I think, in a way, Wagner was the prototype embodiment of that idea
1: because <laughs>
0: he really worshipped.
1: Yeah, Wagner, no, I'm I'm, I'm just like, uh, thinking about uh, some interesting uh, arguments I've had about Wagner and Nietzsche.
0: Yeah, because, uh, well, go ahead. Because my understanding is Nietzsche worshiped worship yeah. Wagner uh, until the rings. And then he saw, uh, because first he saw him as a revolutionary. He saw that art is the most powerful thing in the world and music, the most powerful art. And then Wagner is the most powerful revolutionary who was going to change the world. And yet when he went to the premiere of the rings, uh, what he observed was exactly the opposite. All the aristocracy uh, across from Europe was there, and and Wagner was no revolutionary, but just like reveling in the attention and in the so, sort of self indulgence of the whole experience. So, so Nietzsche basically stormed out halfway through the the. the, the, the uh, the performance and didn't even like see it to the end. That's like my understanding of what happened there. And then basically their relationship went downhill
1: from there. Yeah. I think my interpretation of, of, of what's going on there um, on Nietzsche's side is that he saw Wagner as sort of embedding his art into uh, the German nationalist ideology. um, And, and in this sort of dynamic that we were, in this dynamic, we already talked about, about the the rabble and the famous great men. So that this sort of loop Nietzsche saw as something that needs to be broken apart by um, nothing that can fit within a national or an ethnic uh, ideological frame.
0: Yeah, in, in other words, the real, the true wise men are not those who give the rabble true. what they want and are those who bring revolution against the current, and not who uh, go back to reinforce the old mythologies and give people their old story uh, uh, made grander and and more powerful, but those who kill the old stories, who kill, who slay the gods, who destroy Mm -hmm. the old mythos, uh, you know, whereas Wagner ended up doing exactly the opposite, right? Uh, so instead of transcending nationalism, he reinforced exactly. nationalism, uh, and, and instead of challenging the market, he he became uh, kind of uh, 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 profit started profiting off the market and 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 reveled in that uh, success. Uh, uh, of 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 the rabble. Yeah, yeah I,
1: I I think that's. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there, as it relates to the <clears throat> relation to myth, is that it what 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 this reification of the current myth does. I think, from Nietzsche's perspective, as it relates to freedom and the overman, is that it ignores that the founding jet like this, and I think this also reflects things that Freud thought about with regards to myth, is that. Um, that the origin of a mythological structure is actually a violent lie. And look, the myth is a lie that covers up a primary violence. Um, So the overman is someone that has gone to the foundation of things. So they understand this primary violence. They don't externalize it, meaning they don't want to kill other people or they don't want to go on like some sort of sadistic rampage, but that they turn it in on themselves and use it as a motor of overcoming.
0: Yeah, and, and let me ask you this, because we started touching on mythos, I was thinking of bringing it a little later, but in a way it occurs to me that what Nietzsche was trying to do is to reevaluate the meaning of all values, the, the purpose of life, the, be, the the meaning of being human, uh, I've been trying to do that for the last couple of years with my all, whole thing on like rewriting mm. the human story. Uh, in a way, like not put in the same way, but really it comes down to Mm. the same thing. Uh, I've been struggling with a new story, rewriting the new story, because just like Nietzsche observed, and it only occurred to me like last night, that just like Nietzsche observed what he thought was the collapse of uh, Western civilization in in the face of the death of uh, of God, uh, and that consequent vacuum... uh, I think we're all observing today and, and I came up with this idea that that we need a new story. Of course, Christianity is has been the underlining story of the Western world for a couple thousand years and everything that the West has been built upon, the foundation was, you know, one way or another connected to Christianity. Uh, so I have observed this vacuum now at the beginning of the 21st century. And like Nietzsche, I I've gotten to the idea that we need a new story in a way. So, but, but I only made the connections about all of this, like honestly (laughs) last night, which should have been more obvious to me, but it only occurred to me last night. And I was like, Oh God. So first if Nietzsche failed, how do I have any chance of succeeding? And not only that he failed, but he was actually brought to madness. In his attempt to, to come up with a new story, I was like, "Who the hell am I to come up with sort of rewriting the human story?" Yeah. Nick, are you kidding Philosophy me?
1: Philosophy can have that impact sometimes. Um, I, I think also, like to also to to another thing that to to reflect on is that like to see the way in which what philosophers write in their life, uh, how that gets used after their death. Uh, is oftentimes something that they could not have anticipated or predicted at all. Um, so, like for example, I I don't know if 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 Marx would have been just blown away with the impact that his writing had on the 20th century, or or and the and the way it impacted the world, and and the same for Nietzsche as the way it's been used by certain political organizations. So the story you write and the way you would like it to unfold again. Um, any story which kind of forecloses or predicts the future or 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 anticipates the future in some probabilistic way um, I think oftentimes is going to be met with weird dialectical reversals and 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 things turning into their opposite and and what you thought was the thing is actually the you know opposite of the thing and stuff like that um, so it's a really weird situation to be in and I, and I don't know like I, I don't know what Um, will happen with all of these desires for a new story like for example in my own studies uh, I guess I sort of gotten got caught up in um, big history as a new story right like a cosmic evolution uh, as a new story Uh, you could even say Ray you could even say Ray Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity Is Near is uh, introduced with a cosmic story Uh, and the law of accelerating returns is
0: the singularity yes. is is a new story, and and for me that was the story yes. for a decade, and then I kind of came to mm-hmm. deny that. I'll be we'll interested, talk about yeah. that later. So, 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 uh, yeah. So, so in a way, I mean, of course, just to reinforce your point, Marx was not a Marxist True. necessarily, uh, and Nietzsche was not a Nietzschean in the sense of the the kind no. of the Nazi uh, Nietzscheism that was kind of twisted by his sister. I forget if her name was yeah. Elizabeth, but she kind of like really tried to pander to the Nazis and to Hitler in person. Uh, yeah, it was really personally. ridiculous because everything uh, called,
1: in Nietzsche's philosophy is anti-nationalist and certainly not anti-Semitic, so. Right, right, right.
0: But the question then remains is, um uh so, so there's two questions. Let's take them one by one. Uh, one question is. Are the singularity and transhumanism the new story that Nietzsche failed to come up with? Uh, but even before that, a smaller jump, because that may be a bigger jump is like, would Nietzsche be a transhumanist? Is the Ubermensch the yeah, transhuman? I think
1: these are still, um super fascinating questions for me, because like, like I said, like when I first encountered Nietzsche's thought, it was actually through, through the transhumanist. So that connection was ar- ar- already, already made. And um, even though I sort of drifted from like my sort of specialized focus in, in, in sort of that futurist transhuman world, uh, um, that question still, still fascinates me. I, I, I think, um, of course we have to first sort of um, make, An observation that the, let's say, the philosophical field of transhumanism is very diverse. So we don't want to sort of stereotype in a way um, that sort of reduces the complexity and the nuance of that field to like just caricatures of being anti-body mind uploaders or something like that. I don't think Nietzsche would be too convinced by that train of thinking. Um, but the train of the strain of thinking that I think Nietzsche would be attracted to is um, a science that really takes the body seriously, a science that really takes striving and potentiality seriously. And certainly we see in a lot of transhumanism a enormously powerful and I think positive speculative visionary ethos which points beyond the human species itself and i think that that is something that would be attractive to nietzsche whether or not uh he would agree with the specific conclusions of any one transhumanist as it relates to um you know the outcomes of that activity um but i guess you know i could offer sort of one um uh, parallel uh that that comes to mind is like uh in thus spoke Zarathustra he talks about the future overman uh needing also an over dragon, so there's this idea that even the future overman would have enormous enemies, enormous problems. He even points the idea that like the greatest evil has yet to be done, the biggest enemies have yet to exist. You know, like there's this idea, you know, he he doesn't point this view of the overman towards a peace and harmony. He points towards the overman as almost incredible adventures and incredible battles that we could not fathom. You know, that's the sort of the, the idea he he points towards. And that reminds me of something like, uh, and not reifying any of these stories, but for example, like if you take, for example, Hugo de Garris's Artilect War, you know, whether or not that, that will happen, what, what Hugo de Garis is pointing towards is a tremendous battle and a tremendous conflict which will be taken place between actors and agents which are at the intersection between human, post-human, and beyond human. And I think that's something that, would, that, that, that Nietzsche would be absolutely um, uh, speculatively stimulated by. Um, and and that's sort of like where I come uh, to transhumanism as well, which is massively stimulated by the speculative horizon that it opens up. I don't necessarily identify with one particular outcome of, of a certain theorist, but but nonetheless, what I do think is objective is that the technologies which are possible in the 21st century open up potentialities which h- any human in the past would not have been able to fathom and that alone is where i think nietzsche's philosophy can thrive not necessarily in a, again a strict identification but in this beyond human battle i
0: think in a way also uh transhumanism borrows a lot from nietzsche uh with the mm-hmm. idea of yeah. the bridge humans are a bridge that that Yes, the humans are a bridge from the animal yeah. to the overman, over yeah. the abyss of the present or whatever. And, and so in that sense, that, that's kind of a very, from our point of view now, a very, very transhuman yeah. idea at the same time so so i see i see a lot of overlap here at the same time i'm personally more intuitively inclined and again i'm no expert on nietzsche i have very poor understanding and reading of of nietzsche uh but my understanding is that nietzsche's overman is conceptually substantially different than the yeah transform. well
1: it's 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 one the let's start like nietzsche's overman is about the body. Nietzsche's Overman is about... yes, the heart. And, and the heart. It's about striving. It's about um, opening up possibilities and potentialities, which, what he calls islands of life, which no human has experienced before. So I think if we situate that as the ground, the heart, the body striving for potentialities that no human has ever dreamed about before, I think that the way to integrate that way of thinking with the transhumanist way of thinking is to say that the technologies that may exist in the 21st century are a medium through which the human being can explore potentials of existence which no human has ever dreamed of before. And I think in that way there's a there's a connection. Sure. Yeah, I, I
0: agree with you. And in a way, as as we said, like especially with Zarathustra, Nietzsche tried to literally rewrite the human story in a way to give a new value system, to give a new meaning to human life, to to give a new meaning to what human is or what human. But ought the, also
1: to be. another crucial uh, thing is that he does not. Reify the human as an object to, as a permanent object. He says we're a bridge. He says we're a process. He said he says we're a, a bridge re- and a, a process bridge, yeah. pointing beyond ourselves. So I think this is where that's where it's interesting. With trans, that's where it's interesting that transhumanism comes in for me because he, Nietzsche doesn't. Nietzsche definitely doesn't make the connection that that bridge or that process involves a technological transformation. So. Is it a technological transformation, or at least is technology a part of the picture or a part of the story here that needs to be built out? And if it is, have transhumanists done a good enough job of understanding psychology and anthropology? So I think that on that end, I would say no. I would say that we need a deeper ground of psychology and anthropology, and we need a deeper ground of the role of technology in our becoming beyond the human identity
0: you know that's exactly what i think i think that nietzsche is more yeah. on the greek side and and he would say that that the, the the biggest process of becoming the biggest transformation ought to be not on the uh, biological and, and and physiological and technological side, but on the psychological side, yes. on the spiritual side, yes. on the heart side, and and so therefore any technological, biological, uh, physiological transformation must be accompanied by equal psychological, spiritual, uh, um, mental. And even value, uh, ethical uh, tr- uh, transformation. And 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 I think that's the core difference, uh, and maybe the greatest flaw that I personally see, and the greatest uh, criticism that I personally have towards transhumanism, and and why I don't think it's a it's it's that new story that Nietzsche tried to write, and, and why I don't think that neither the singularity nor transhumanism provide that new story is, is precisely because they focus so exclusively on the technological mm-hmm. side of things that there's almost a full abandonment on 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 the psychological spiritual and ethical development which is required is is a must it's not optional so i would say the technological scientific uh, material uh, and physiological development may be necessary, Absolutely. but it's insufficient. And it could be even detrimental unless it's accompanied by equal or greater physiological, I mean, psychological, spiritual and ethical uh, yes. development. Uh, and, and and that's where the gap opens, in my mind, between Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's Uberman, uh, uh, Ubermensch or or the Overman and the uh, transhuman, Uh, because I I think we are way too obsessed with the the, the scientific materialistic, uh, physiological, biological transformation, computational transformation and neurological transformation and those things, but we forget that that those could be even suicidal uh, to our whole civilization, even if we're not accompanying them with equal spiritual and ethical uh, and, and moral development. Uh, and, and 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 that's why I think actually it's, it's where the danger lies in our future. Uh, and that's where I'm trying to come up with a new story that actually honors these uh, important elements, not just the, the scientific and the materialistic end of things, but the spiritual and ethical development required. Because the way I see it, the greatest challenges of our civilization today are, you know, if you say nuclear proliferation, climate change, you know, species extinction, uh, ocean acidification, soil erosion, whatever. They're actually all the same thing if you look at it at a deeper level. And that's our technological and scientific power far exceeding our ability to wisely control and employ it in a non-suicidal non-self-destructive or non-destructive matter. And I think that's because there is this growing gap between our power and our ability to control it in a wise manner. And, And so therefore, more science, more technology, more power, therefore is not going to be helpful, but it's going to be hurtful unless it is accompanied by the equal growth of that kind of spiritual and ethical growth and so if the gap is growing bigger, the problems are only going to get worse. They're not going to get better. And that's where I see the core difference between Nietzsche because I think he would have been with me on the Greek side of things, on the personal development, on the internal development side of things, more than on the materialistic, scientific, outwardly. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: I think that I think that that's, I think that that's, that's it's, an, it's an incredibly important um, distinction. I think it's probably one of the the reasons why I felt at a certain moment of my doctorate that the evolutionary and the transhumanist worldview has had gotten me to a certain point, but that it had left out the the psyche uh and it had left out sort of the the anthropology of the situation. Um, which includes all the things you're talking about, the spirituality and the the ethics and stuff like that. As it relates to the story, I guess my view is that human beings are storytellers. That's sort of a part of our being. We are storytellers. So I don't necessarily think that there'll be one story that will sort of be reified. And maybe even I think we should fight against that temptation. I think that Um, I, I, I guess I, I have a, I had a certain spiritual experience where I had a certain perspectival shift on the role of the story because I was in a certain, uh, ayahuasca trip and I was basically shown my death. And, um, I was basically like, there was an entity that opened up a black hole and showed me my death. And basically the message I got from that experience was that there will be an experience I have, which I'll never be able to tell a story about. In other words, like, for example, I, the, what I always say is like, if if after this interview, I go out and I go and grab a, a burger down the street and I get hit by a bus, I won't be able to tell that story to anyone. In other words, death is more fundamental than the story. And when I die, I have no control over the stories that humans will tell about me, about anything. So, and that's the same, for example, with Nietzsche. Nietzsche has no control over the stories we weave about him a century after he's dead. So the... I have this idea that the story is like a temporal orientation structure of the past and the future, which is constantly being rewritten in the present moment. So I'm not in control of the stories that humans 50 years from now will be telling about now. I only have control over my, now, can that story be built out? I can tell my story, which is constantly being rewritten in the present moment. I guess the question is. What transpersonal stories can we be telling ourselves now, which will orient ourselves in a way that will prevent the challenges and the problems that you're talking about, as it relates to this power and this technology, which is vastly exceeding any of our ethical capacities.
0: So if you tell a story that's a clearing for other stories, that creates the space for other stories to mutually and peacefully coexist. That would be the kind of story that I have in mind. So think about it as the World Cup, right? So you can have... So it's not a personal story that I'm going for here. You can have your personal story of being, uh, you know, Ronaldo uh, or or being one of those famous superstars. You can also have a, a, a team story of being Team Brazil or being Team Germany or Team England or whatever. Those are all interesting stories. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the story of the game and the story of the World Cup because what happens is all of those people and teams come together and play within the story of soccer or football in Europe and they all therefore follow the same rules and they abide by the same referee decisions even when they don't like them they accept the legitimacy of, uh, of the decisions, they embrace the same value system. And so even when Brazil loses to Germany, they accept and they're super unhappy about it. They accept the legitimacy of that outcome. Why? And it's all done in a peaceful uh, a manner where mutually exclusive and incompatible and competitive narratives, stories peacefully coexist together. Why? Because we accept the underlying story of what the World Cup is. And in a way, Christianity was like that idea for thousands of years, which set the rules and legitimized and gave the foundation of the Western civilization, right? And that's why when you have the collapse of that kind of ethic or, or, or you know, uh, story, uh, as Christianity, you open such a vacuum and you need to replace it. And the tragedy is that in that vacuum, anything is possible, even the worst of crimes, etc. and you need, you must come up with a new narrative to fill that vacuum, to give new meaning, to, to be able to create that framework for civilizational wide, peaceful coexistence of even mutually incompatible stories. And so for me, even subconsciously, when I look back uh, the appeal of transhumanism and the singularity was that they provided that kind of narrative for me uh, for a decade, almost, but for the reasons that I already mentioned previously, at certain point in time, I had to abandon them. And I personally had to go beyond beyond those. Uh, and so, so that's where I am today. And now I'm struggling again
1: with nothing <laughs> really. So that's where that's where I, ni- that's where Nietzsche wants you it's to be. Ridiculous, <laughs> struggling with nothing, making the, the I, nest I out of the abyss. I, I, I-,
0: I guess because before the, the appeal of the singularity and transhumanism is that they give you that creed, they give you that certainty, they give you that rope that you hang on a, 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 and you rely on for everything, and it's so powerful, such a strong rope it's so useful that it's it's like uh, life giving it's it's like uh, meaning giving it's like purpose given but 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 now i end up again with nothing because i've denied that and i'm trying to recreate a better rope that's not even a rope because i don't believe in ropes and it's utterly ridiculous <laughs> and i'm stuck with well- nothing and that's I, I where think, I am I at think right now.
1: The way I related to the transhuman story was that it was always a story again pointing beyond the species. It was a story pointing beyond me, and it was a story. It was a story pointing beyond my identity. So I didn't really see it as a, as a rope saving me so much. It was as a rope helping me make sense of the complexity of modern technology, and in that sense. I think it still has some sort of value for me personally, but I don't view it as a totalizing story that explains everything. I think the problem is when we look for a totalizing story that explains everything, what we do is that we don't understand the truth that in my language, um, there's a more fundamental negativity of identity or death of identity. So like, that's that that, again, that's like sort of what I was trying to point towards with the, the ayahuasca vision, which is that There will be an experience I have basically. And so the language I use is negativity, non-identity, uh, death of identity. Um, that's more primary, that's more fundamental than any story. So the idea here is that the only thing that unifies the human species is this negativity. So we can tell as many stories as we like. We can have like, so for example, you can have different nested levels of stories. The personal like and you gave that example, like with the World Cup and soccer, right, like where you can build more and more nested levels of stories. So like, for example, there's the story of Team Brazil and there's the story of Team England and Team England and Team Brazil are in a conflict with each other. But they're housed within the story of the World Cup or they're housed even a larger level within the story of soccer or they're housed within even a larger story of sports and athletic competition in general. But there's no end to this. There's no end to this. There's no ultimate level to it. And that's a good thing. In other words, there's no ultimate level of a totalizing story. The way I approach it is that a totalizing story will always have an opposite other, which is in competition with it. And that there will always be some sort of question or openness as to, or ambiguity as it relates to what rules, what values, what virtues are the right rules and the right values and the right virtues. And that's the role of subjectivity. That's the role of the overman. The overman is the, the being, which is constantly in some sort of uncertain ambiguity with What's the right thing to do? What's the right rules? What's the right values? What's the right virtues? They're not totalized. There's not one story that tells you and gives you the final answer. Um, so I think that that applies on the level of socio political arena, that there's never going to be one human group which finishes and completes the story. So like, let me just give one more example. In the 20th century, I think... The dominant story was the American dream, let's say, like the American dream, and America was the most powerful nation, and all the other nations looked to America to for the rules and the values and the modern constitution and the modern democracy and capitalism and capitalism
0: you can say American dream has embedded absolutely in the and capitalist
1: capitalism story. is a very interesting universal story in that way, in the fact that it. Overrides and overdetermines all traditional stories. So, like for example, uh, if you're a Maasai tribe, you can still engage and sell little trinkets of your. You could commodify the Maasai tribe. <laughs> you could, you could, for example. So in sure. that, just like exactly you can
0: commodify Buddhism, exactly in and all exactly.
1: Of so the so in 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 so like with the example of nationalism with America and the example of economics with capitalism, these are totalizing stories. Which provide certain rules, certain values, certain virtues, but it will never end the process of storytelling as such. The process of storytelling and the competition with other totalizing entities will go on. That's my, that's anyway, that's at least how I think about it. Totally.
0: And if you think about it, the 20th century was a competition between the story of fascism and the story of. Communism exactly that's how I see and it too. the story of capitalism and you know and, and Nietzsche was against such reductionist over exactly. explaining narratives himself and it's one of the reasons maybe why he didn't pu- yeah. publish the will to power and why in his last uh, notes before he went crazy he started scribbling shopping lists all over his manuscript uh you know because he didn't have such a high respect to his will to power uh, ideas uh, and story anymore uh uh and and of course those were later adopted by the nazi and 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 we saw the effect of that but that yeah. was a highly reductionist just like the marxist idea which is also why marx wouldn't be a marxist right yeah. uh so but did this, Cadell, this has been a very, very rewarding conversation. Really? I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, so, so let me just ask you a couple of, of last questions here though, before we leave. So, so, first of all, tell me a little bit more about the philosophy portal. And what you do there, and where can people find more about your work, and 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 perhaps join you in this kind of a conversation, discussion, and and learning about Nietzsche in general and other yeah, philosophical so philosophy
1: topics. portal. So basically, like, so I'm gonna connect this to like some of the language I've been using throughout the podcast is like this idea of making a nest out of the abyss, and this idea of having a feedback loop with the abyss, and 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 and. and, and 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 lack, I guess, is that Philosophy Portal was born out of my not fitting within academia, let's say. Um, And the types of content I teach and the types of thinkers I teach are basically the the minds who I think could build out a a, um, intellectual foundation for existentialism. An intellectual foundation for phenomenology and an intellectual foundation for the for the psyche. So uh, I've taught uh, on Freud, I've talked on Hegel, and I I, I, and I'm going to be teaching on Nietzsche. So I'm I'm interested in existentialism. I'm interested in phenomenology. I'm interested in the psyche, um, and I'm interested in what the the most influential and powerful minds of the last few centuries have to say about these things, not to reify them as the correct interpretation, but to not make straw men out of these individuals. So I think the temptation to turning great thinkers into straw men is one of the biggest sins of of academic culture. Like for example, I always think it's a crime when like say, for example, we talk about like a Descartes or a Newton and like we bring out like one little Uh, chunk of information and then negate them like, uh, oh, uh, Descartes cogito, how stupid, like we throw them away or like, or, you know, I think that we should go into these minds, we should explore them in the full richness of the mind that they were. um, And again, uh, not reify them as the correct interpretation, but see what an interpretation of them has to say for the present moment. And that's what I'm trying to do with Philosophy Portal. Um, that's what I'm going to be trying to do with uh, with Thus Spoke Zarathustra and Nietzsche. I think it's very timely for, for uh, thinking about existentialism. And the way I design the courses is so that there's always an active, ongoing dialogue and a creative community, and that that creative community points towards a collective creative project. So we're never just uh, learning for learning's sake. We're learning to create something. Uh, So, for example, in the Phenomenology of Spirit course, we had a conference, which was, I think, a really interesting conference because it's not like I've had the experience in academia where you go to a conference and you don't really care about what other people are doing and they don't really care about what you're doing. But in the conference we had with Philosophy Portal is that there was a lot of synergy between the presenters because everyone had gone through the course together. So there was a sense of community. There was a sense of, I really care about what this guy's been thinking because he said some really interesting things in the course. And I'm interested in what his interpretation of this text was. Uh, And that's what we're going to try to do with uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And the point is to basically, again, not reify them in the past, but see insofar as the concepts these guys came up with, how far they can help us make sense of the 21st century.
0: And use them as, or their ideas as mirrors that can hopefully help yes. us see better who we are, where we're coming from, where we're going and what we stand for. Uh, but Cadell, unfortunately, I have to bring our conversation to to to, 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 to the end here, even though I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So what's the best way you want to send us away here? What's the, the most important message that you want to... Uh, give our audience.
1: I suppose what I would like to tell the audience is to constantly hold identity and the otherness of identity in a sort of relationship. So um, it's not that we should just deconstruct our identities completely, um, and it's uh, you know for 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 non-identity, and it, it's not that we should just hold on to our identity as it is now. I think we have to have a constant feedback and relationship between identity and difference or identity and otherness of identity. And I think that that ongoing negotiation um, or process um, is something that brings up a lot of emotional issues and can bring up a lot of negativity. But this is the path, in my view, to overcoming, which requires that you see that what you are is the present it's not some, uh, thing that you're going to be getting in the future. So
0: the path of overcoming lies between identity and difference.
1: That's the way I think about it.
0: Brilliant. Kadell Last, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Nicola.